Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ, a couple of Christ's confessing Concordians. Read through the book of Concord and discuss our Lutheran confession of faith. On today's show, we're going to be finishing the small called articles, which are the articles confessing the faith written by Martin Luther himself. We'll be looking at this part three, article 14 of monastic vows, and also article 15 of human traditions. Our confessor to discuss these articles with us today is Pastor Anthony Oliphant. He's the pastor at Redeemer Lutheran in Elmhurst, Illinois. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the dual parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill. Pastor Oliphant, thank you for joining us for Concord Matters. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome to have you. Absolutely. Uh, just to set this up a little bit here for us, uh, I'm going to I'm going to let you do some setup for us here in just a second. But I, I just want to relate this back to uh, the show that I had last week where we covered Article 13, how one is justified before God and does good works. And I've tried to highlight each week how how you see kind of the logical progression of each of these articles as they flow forth. Um, from Martin Luther, uh, you know, trying to present a, a logical confession of our faith. And uh, we've talked about on this show how this is uh, perhaps could be viewed as his last will and testament, his last opportunity to to say this, this is what the Reformation was all about. This is, this is what I have come to know and believe and hold on to as my faith has been formed by Scripture uh, throughout his life and, and indeed the Reformation and so forth. And so, uh, unfortunately, it was for a conference that never actually happened, but it, it remains as a faithful confession of the Lutheran faith, especially from Luther's own pen. And so when we talked about Article 13 um, last time, uh, how that was naturally progressing fro- forth from, you know, uh, some of the abuses and things that were going on in the Roman Catholic Church that Luther had taught against um, and wanted to restore right teaching for uh, going on in the church and things of that nature. Um, of course, then, you know, what the Reformation was all about was, the issue of good works uh, in Article 13, uh, you know, certainly highlights some of the things going on there. And then these articles that kind of wrap up the small called articles for us here, uh, at least at different times as I've gone through things, sometimes I've been kind of told, you know, those are just kind of tag on articles. And oh, by the way, we, we want to address these things as well. But I, I'd like to frame it for you this way, that I don't think they're just tag on articles of other abuses going on in the church that Luther also wants to address and that there's no logical connection. These are some of the good works that were being promoted by the Roman Catholic Church and people were having a false hope and trust placed in those things rather than in the gospel uh, of uh, salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, um, that, uh, you know, these things were some of those good works that uh, had become abuses in the church. And so he's specifically addressing some of those those good works um, 
that would lead you astray and returning us again to that gospel that he addresses in article 13 there that we are justified by God, justified by God's grace. Um, so I just want to present that logical connection. Pastor Oliphant, is there anything else that you'd like to do in kind of setting up these articles before we dig into them here today? No, that's exactly uh, what I was hoping you would do, is to kind of look for the progression of exactly how these uh, articles have been developed uh, by Luther himself. You know, it wasn't just, the, this third section isn't just a whole bunch of miscellanea, as you said, but there actually is a rhyme and reason to it, and it all does connect back to that uh, chief doctrine that he touches on in the second part. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, we've, we've highlighted that on, on previous weeks as well, that it, it's not even just a progression within the third part itself, but it all flows forth from the second part, which all flows forth from the first part, our confession of the creed, essentially. And so, yeah, that continuity of it here, um, I, I do think is, is important to highlight. With that, then we'll go ahead and we'll read, uh, article, um, 14 here. It's brief. And, uh, and so then we'll, we'll discuss it and probably just take kind of the first half of the show for that. Um, and then uh, we'll dig into uh, Article 15 in the second half of the show. Um, so let's go ahead and read Article 14 here. Again, I'm using the Concordia Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord available from CPH. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful edition of the Book of Concord for us. And um, you can get that at cph.org for yourself. And this is Small Called Articles. Part 3, Article 14, Monastic Vows. Since monastic vows directly conflict with the first chief article, they must be absolutely abolished. It is about them that Christ says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Matthew 24, verse 5 and 23 through 24. He who makes a vow to live as a monk believes that he will enter upon a way of life holier than ordinary Christians lead. He wants to earn heaven by his own works, not only for himself, but also for others. This is to deny Christ. They also boast from their St. Thomas Aquinas that a monastic vow is equal to baptism. This is blasphemy. And that is the entirety of Article 14. So as we've pointed out before, uh, and is very typical of anyone who spends much time reading much of Luther, he's not one that beats around the bush. He, he, he speaks very directly to these issues. Uh, he's not afraid to say, look, this is blasphemy, what's being taught and what's being directed. So, so what is this blasphemy? Is that too strong a word? Or, or, or what, what's Luther getting at here, Pastor Oliphant? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's interesting to note that in the uh, the original manuscript that we have of the uh, small call articles, that that very last sentence, this is blasphemy, um, was actually written by Luther himself in his own handwriting. Um, and so, I mean, he is making a point that's an exclamation point to everything that's gone before. And the reason why he does view it as being such a, a, a critical error uh, that's being made with monastic vows, it all goes back to this very first sentence. Uh, since monastic vows directly conflict with the first chief article, uh, they must be absolutely abolished. And I mean, just by way of reminder, that first chief article is that Jesus Christ, our God and Lord, died for our sins and was raised again for our justification. He alone 
is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and God has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. And so this is, uh, this is all going back to whether, uh, whether this actually keeps us with Christ or whether it throws us back onto our own works. Uh, and Luther is saying emphatically here that monastic vows, uh, they pull you back to your own works, um, that they they can't help but do that. That's the only thing they can do. I mean, it's a, it's a vow of something that these men and women are making, uh, uh, that they're going to be doing these things that are going to be meriting their salvation. Um, and even worse, uh, that they are not only pulling their own eyes away from Christ, but they're pulling the eyes of other people away from Christ too, um, that they can trust in the works that these monks uh, will kind of accumulate over the course of their uh, monkhood, uh, their careers as monks, I suppose, um, that they'll accumulate enough works that they'll, they'll have more than enough to get themselves in uh, and that other people will be able to benefit from their good works as well. And so Luther is, uh, he's emphatic that this, is, this isn't just a, a miscellaneous thing or a, a stray error, but this is connected to the very heart of the faith. And so um, strong language, yes, but uh, where, where it actually does touch on the very core of what we believe, uh, strong language is very often necessary to kind of snap people out of it. Yeah, I like how you highlight there for us that monastic vows pull you back into your own works. And anytime, um, you know, I, I'm reminded of, uh, the dear Dr. Norman Nagel, um, uh, former professor or professor emeritus, uh, from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. He would always say, you know, one should, one ought not talk too much about himself because it would obscure Christ, right? And, and anytime we, focus too much on ourselves, our own sufficiency, uh, and things of that nature, then, then yeah, we're going to be pulled away from Christ and, and we're going to start to put our trust in our own works. And that's, that's certainly the danger, um, that had manifested itself when it comes to these monastic vows, right? Um, although we've highlighted on this show before, and, and I wonder your thoughts on this because we, we had different, different, uh, pastors speaking on this topic when we covered it in the most recently in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, uh, where monastic vows are dealt with there. Uh, the, I think, in the, especially in the Apology, Melanchthon, he's a little more charitable to the Roman Catholics and pointing out that, look, it, it was an attempt for a pious life that the, the monastic orders were even formed. And, and it's good to, to desire piety in your Christian life and, and to endeavor to live that way. Um, but I wonder what your thoughts are on the relation of taking these monastic vows and, and the strong language that Luther uses here and the relation to, um, you know, that, that in, in your own words there, monastic vows themselves will, will only lead you, will only pull you back to your own works. I, I think you highlighted that for us. So, so what would you say would be the relation there is, is just, you know, living in intentional Christian community with piety in view itself inherently a flawed idea that's only going to put us back into our own works or is there a place for that? And, and it's the corruption that we have to hold intention and not fall into. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, we have these hints in, in this very short article uh, that, or maybe we could say echoes of when he does talk about uh, monastic orders earlier in the small cult articles themselves. Um, 
I mean, this goes all the way back to uh, Part 2, Article 3, when he says right out of the gate there, talking about chapters and cloisters, monastic colleges and communities were formerly founded with the good intention of educating learned men and virtuous women. They should be used for that again. Uh, they could, and this is where it gets really interesting. They could produce pastors, preachers, and other ministers for the church. They also could produce essential personnel for the secular government in cities and countries, as well as well-educated young women for mothers, housekeepers, and such. And we can kind of hear this echo of, you know, where he's talking about people just living in their careers, whether they are pastors, preachers, and other ministers, or whether they're uh, working within the secular world, or if they're working within the home. Uh, we do hear echoes of that where um, in the article we're dealing with today, in Article 14, where it says, He who makes a vow to live a monk believes that he will enter upon a way of life holier than ordinary Christians lead. Um, and so... That when we when we draw these two articles together, we can see that Luther is really highlighting uh, the the dignity and the holiness of a Christian life uh, that's that's lived in faith, no matter where that life is. Um, and so he's saying, you know, there are people that that God will call as pastors and preachers. There are people that He'll call to work within uh, this the the secular sphere uh, in governments and in trade, and there are people that he'll call to work within a household. And these are all good stations, and so we should be doing everything in our power to use these resources, like we like they used to have in monastic colleges, um, to actually train people for it. Because this is the best thing that we can do, is to encourage people and equip them for the life that they've been called to live in these various stations, no matter where they are. And so, I mean, Luther, what he was doing with this article is actually pretty groundbreaking for the time that he's saying that, it, that monastic life is not in and of itself holier just because of what they're doing. And in fact, um, what Luther does is he kind of flips everything on its head and he says, no, the fact that these monks have withdrawn from the rest of the world that they're not serving their neighbors. They're doing works to earn something for themselves from God. And these works are all caught up behind the walls of the monastery and not serving anyone outside of it. That that life is actually inferior to the lives that are being lived by mothers and housekeepers and people who are just going to their job every single day. Uh, and so what he's doing, he's actually flipping the entire order over. And he's saying that the holiest life you can do the holiest life you can lead is to do those things that God has set right before you in serving all the, the people around you. And, you know, if we go back and look at what's happening in this um, second part where he does talk about the, uh, the chapters and cloisters, look at all the careers that he mentions. These are all careers that have to do with uh, being with our neighbors, pastors, preachers, ministers for the church, essential personnel for secular government. Women, mother, uh, women who are mothers and housekeepers and such, uh, so that we, these are all jobs that have to do with being with the people that God has placed around us and serving them rather than withdrawing from them, which is exactly what's happening with the. And, and so, in that sense, it's a recovery of. Christian vocation then, right? So, so this would be, exactly. 
Yeah, th- th- this would then be, you know, one of the other main highlights of the Reformation itself. And, and I thank you for, for bringing, bringing us back to part two, article three, chapters and cloisters, because my mind completely slipped and I didn't even look at my own notes. Um, I, I was referencing the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, of which uh, Melanchthon uh, does do that, uh, does address that there as well. But we did cover this more recently when it, when it came to chapters and cloisters. And, and I like how you highlighted there for us. Uh, especially, I, I said it when we covered it then, and, and I still like these words now. Um, and they should be used for that again, right? And, and so, yeah, yeah. it is—it it is these good works that will proceed from forth from a life of faith, right? When when one understands in Part Three, Article Thirteen, how one is justified before God, they will do good works, right? A, a good fruit or a good tree will bear good fruit, right? And so, uh, you know, these right. are good works and we should endeavor to do these things. A right understanding of Christian vocation is is just so wonderful and beautiful for church and society, especially. Um, and, and so we, we got to have that right understanding. Um, but but I, I think, you know, then uh, what you're highlighting here for us is that the, the monastic vows themselves because of the very nature and essence of what they are. And, and I tried to do a little looking around. I just I had some funerals come up and I just didn't have time to find it and so forth. I, I was looking for um, what the words of those vows would have been at the time of the Reformation. I don't know if you know those uh, specifically or not, but, uh, um, you know, so uh, unfortunately, I just don't have them to share at this moment. But but it's clear in what Luther is writing here that he's saying just the words that are being spoken themselves are so Christless and so driving us away from the gospel. It, it is not flowing forth from a right understanding of how one is justified before God and then does good works. It's, it's putting your trust actually in the works themselves because of the very words that you're speaking. Uh, again, I, I'm kind of assuming just because of what's written here, I don't have those actual words myself. And, and then also, he highlights then flowing forth from that, that it's not even just for themselves, you know, in the words that they're speaking, um, that they believe this about the monastic vows, but they believe that it actually conveys this on behalf of others as well. Could you talk a little bit about what he means by that? What's going on at the time and, and what's kind of the thinking behind uh, the Roman Catholic position that uh, these monastic orders and vows are, are conveying some benefit on behalf of others then? Right. So a lot of this will go back to uh, the controversy that that arose over indulgences that kind of kicked off uh, the the Reformation with uh, Luther responding to that with the 95 Theses. And the concept behind this was uh, this treasury of merit that was established, uh, uh, well, it wasn't established, this it was supposedly established by uh uh, by the uh, the accumulated good works of the saints, uh, you know, there's this threshold of holiness that you have to attain to before you can enter into uh, into eternal life. Uh, fortunately for all of us uh, that have many, many, many more demerits than we have uh, than we have good works, the uh, the saints have plenty left over, and of course these good works just don't go away, but they get kind of stored up in this uh, this treasury of merits. And then the way that those are accessed was through, by, by papal uh, decree, uh, that those are accessed through uh, indulgences. And so this is what, uh, this is what uh, Tetzel was, uh, was preaching uh, just, uh, just outside of Wittenberg. 
where he was saying that uh, anybody who bought one of these indulgences would receive access to the uh, the heavenly treasury of merit, and that then they could have time taken off uh, in purgatory uh, for the punishment, or they would they would have their the guilt of their sins covered then by these accumulated good works of the monks and the saints, uh, and then uh, that their their time of punishment in purgatory or the time of punishment in purgatory for their loved ones could be uh, decreased. And so uh, this is this is where a lot of this is coming from when Luther is saying. I mean, it, it's always important to remember biography uh, whenever we're reading anything like this uh, that's coming out of the, the pen of one man. And so Luther himself, who was a monk, um, uh, he he's going to he's going to have some good insights into what's going on in the in the inner life of a monk, uh, what this monk is being taught, he's doing. While he's there in the minister, uh, while he's there in the monastery, uh, and then also we have to look at his own biography of, of of what he was dealing with as the preacher at St. Mary's in Wittenberg, and he's he's having to teach these people no that you you don't trust uh, this piece of paper that you bought uh, that says that you now have access to good works that these other monks uh, that these monks. I don't know if we lost Pastor Oliphant there or not, uh, but uh, I, I'm hearing silence on my end, so I'm going to jump in there and uh, and say um, that uh, you're highlighting there for us that uh, the, this treasury of merit, these these things that uh, uh, we're accessing their good works. Uh, one of the things that kind of jumps to my mind, you know, I, I I spent my undergrad in public relations and marketing kind of classes and so forth. Uh, and, you know, just when I look at the Roman Catholic system of this treasure of merits and so forth, I say it's really quite genius as far as a money making and, and marketing scheme in that sense. I mean, uh, because, you know, uh, what what you in essence then develop is you have a bunch of hearers of God's word who know that they they struggle in their sinful flesh to live the way that they're called to live. Um, and, and yet they're struggling in that, as we all do. And so isn't it really convenient that we have some really special holy people that do better at this Christian life thing than I do? And so I can pay and access that. And of course, it, it also benefits us to get us time off of purgatory, which we really don't want, you know, that time of purifying. And, and we've talked about all of that false teaching and everything played in there as well. But it, it is this kind of, you know, on the Roman Catholic side, this really genius kind of marketing move and so forth. And, and yet... Uh, you know, it, it's not right. It's not faithful. And, and it doesn't actually result in exhorting people to a life of faith uh, and good works that flow forth from that faith and, and a life of piety, Christian piety and so forth, um, because they don't understand they're not being taught properly. And so this teaching that, you know, yeah, you, you have the monks that take these holy orders and then they live this really special life, um, you know, and, and, and achieve so many good works, especially the lives of the saints who have really done it upright and, uh, and that I can have access to that. Well, that's really beneficial uh, for me if I'm just a poor hearer sitting under that teaching. But that's not actually how the gospel works. Uh, and there's nothing in scripture that directs us to that thought, with the exception of perhaps maybe one passage. And, and this is uh, one, one thing that I've heard referenced before. Um, 
which is, it, it comes to us in James chapter five. Uh, and, and I think it's a complete misreading of it, but in James chapter five, it points us to if any of you are sick or suffering, right? Call your elder, have them pray over you and anoint you that the prayer of a righteous person may grant you healing. And I've heard the case made that, you know, it's this, this righteous person, this person outside of you, um, that, uh, then merits something on your behalf. And in, in that case, they, they take the reading as that elder, which we would call a pastor coming and praying over you, um, has some sort of merit on your behalf. Uh, that's the one case I've heard, you know, kind of referencing from scripture to this, to this treasury of merit thing. Uh, do you want to address that at all, Pastor Oliphant, if we have, have you back there? You know, actually I, I have not, um, I don't know that I've heard the argumentation from James that that, that actually is in support of any kind of uh, treasury of merit. That I would I would think you'd have to do quite a quite a few back backflips to make it through uh, to explain that scripturally. But um, but yeah, I mean it it it, it, it is this well developed system where you're going to constantly have demand, and uh, as long as you have monks, you're going to have supply, and so it does set up a a nice, a nice, clean uh, theological system. Uh, unfortunately, it's a system that is uh, that's founded in contradiction to what we know about uh, how salvation is given as a gift. Uh, but, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It is this uh, this well designed little system there. Yeah, I like what you said there. You're going to have to do some theological backflips to make that case. And, and I don't want to take us too far afield with that James 5 reference either. That was just kind of the one, one reference that I've ever heard. And, and it is kind of, yeah, they're, they're making theological backflips and exegetical backflips, uh, to try and fit this into their formed system that they formed apart from scripture. But again, this is kind of case in point of what the Roman Catholic Church has always done. We've seen it before as we've gone through the Book of Concord that, uh, you know, I, I've often and pointed out on this show, it just seems like they're working too hard rather than like letting the plain, simple uh, teaching of Scripture stand. And it's because they form these these systems in the church outside of God's Word. And that's, that's kind of Luther's whole point here is let's get back to the Word and confess faithfully what the Word leads and guides us in. And that's his main point. And of course, this still goes on in the church still today as well. The Roman Catholics, I, I know of a, a few monasteries around where you can still pay and and earn from this treasury of merit. So that still goes on. Uh, but I, I kind of also wonder your thoughts about, uh, you know, maybe some other places and maybe not even in the Roman Catholic Church where we still see this at work in the church today. But we're right up against a break. We're going to have to take that break. So uh, uh, put that into your thoughts, Pastor Oliphant, and we'll be glad to uh, to get those thoughts right after this. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. 
and at Concordia University. It's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. This is Pastor Stanley Stanley asking you to save the date, Tuesday, October 8th, for a great day of golf and fellowship at Norwood Hills Country Club to benefit Christian Friends of New Americans. Registration, 10.30, followed by lunch and 18-hole scramble shotgun start at 12 noon. Evening event includes 5 p.m. hospitality hour, dinner and awards. Become a sponsor or register at cfna-stl.org slash golf or call 314-517-8513. A great way to spend the day. Play a round of golf and support CFNA as they bring the love of Christ to refugees and immigrants in the St. Louis area. Not a golfer, but would like to learn more about CFNA and ways to be involved? Register for the evening hospitality hour and dinner event. That's Tuesday, October 8th at Norwood Hills Country Club. Register at cfna-stl.org slash golf or call 314-517-8513. And welcome back to Concord Matters. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emanuel West Point, St. Paul's Wine Hill. And today, as we are uh, wrapping up the small called articles here, uh, part, uh, part three, Article 14, Monastic Vows, and Article 15, Human Traditions, we have with us Pastor Anthony Oliphant, who's the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran in Elmhurst, Illinois. And right as we ran up against the break, uh, I, I wanted to get this shift. I, I think short article, and we've covered really well um, kind of, uh, you know, what was going on at the time that Martin Luther wrote this? What was he addressing? Uh, what was he encouraging us to return to? Uh, and, and things of that nature. And we've got its current context, I think, pretty well. Of course, you could always go uh, much more in depth with that. Um, but uh, uh, for the sake of sake of uh, uh, pushing forward and so forth. Um, one last point before we move on to Article 15 then that I'd like to cover is, you know, some people would make the case, yeah, you still see some monasteries around. And so obviously there are still some who take monastic vows, although I know a lot of folks in the Roman Catholic Church uh, um these days and 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 they're struggling just kind of like a lot of christian denominations to get clergy in there and especially uh monks and nuns and things of that nature they're just really hurting they they can't get folks in uh to, but they're still around but it's not really a big issue uh for the church um but what what is some of the thinking that's behind this that maybe we still see it play out in the in the church at large still today do you have any thoughts on that pastor elephant yeah, um, a couple of things there. First is that, I mean, it doesn't always need to take place within a, a large scale, um, you know, church body or institution in order for it to, to still be this kind of thinking. I mean, how many times do do we hear people um, when they're talking about their prayers or we even have in our own personal prayer lives where we'll say, oh, uh, God, if you'll do this for me, then I promise I will X, Y, or Z, right? Um if you just do this one thing for me, then I'll I'll stop doing that forever. Um, it's the it's this whole notion of you're you're trying to barter with God, you're trying to um, you're trying to buy something from Him with something that you can offer. 
Um, and so we, we can see it just on this personal level still playing out. And, you know, there, there is part of us that we're, we're hardwired to want to do this, to offer something to God, which is why, you know, legalism is, is the, the perennial threat that we always have, um, that, that if we just do enough, then we're going to receive some kind of uh, reward from God. Now, whether that reward is something that's purely temporal or whether we think that we can ultimately kind of win salvation, um, that's immaterial because at the end of the day, it's still trying to offer something that we can do uh, to God so that we can be rewarded in some way. And, and um, I, So, yeah, it, it does. Oh go, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh yeah, so um, so yeah, I mean, it does happen just in this in this this very private personal sphere as well. And what we see happening with monasticism is just kind of a a, a public amplic, amplification of what we already have going on in our own uh, hearts, according to our our sinful, law addicted nature. Yeah, and and I'm thinking of what you're saying there, even within the context of. Um... You know, Luther, who's kind of writing this from personal experience, is kind of autobiographical in that sense himself, right? Uh, that he knows these things are going yeah. on because he himself lived it as an Augustinian monk, exactly. right? And, and what prompted him into that? Well, you know, there's this story about the the lightning and the bad storm and things that kind of scared him into it and everything. But but I, I think also playing in, you see pl- uh, play out in, in various of his writings and so forth as well, is that he had this real fear of, of not being on good terms with God. And, and part of that was the teaching going on in the church at the time, forming that in him and so forth. But, but he wanted this and he desired to live a God-pleasing life, right? And so he's kind of driven into the monastery, both in part because of fear and, and he thinks that he's, that God is angry with him and he's trying to appease God. Um, but then also the, just the way that he lives as a monk in there, it's kind of like you say, he's, he's kind of bartering with God, you know, and, 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 you know, trying to, to, to earn up, you know, uh, these good works that, that make him pleasing to God. And that's, that's just a really terrible thing. But then you also see play out, I think, still today, too, just to touch on this, um, you know, kind of the, the other end of what you highlighted there for us is is that as we still do that today, and we can do that in a load of things, and, and we've, you know, I like the way that you talked about it broadly, that, you know, we, we, we just we tend to do this with so many works where we barter with God. And I thank you for that. We've highlighted specifics, you know, like sometimes uh, folks go off and do mission trips or, or serve in the church just purely because we're doing this bartering with God kind of thing. And, and it could be a lot more examples than that. So I'll, I'll let the broader example that you gave uh, stand as I think uh, any of us can feel, uh, uh, you know, can sense in our own lives, how that plays out. But one of the other things that I also see, uh, play out in the church today, and I wonder your thoughts on this, is especially when it comes to the, on behalf of others, you know, the, from that treasury of merits. And and while we would not necessarily say, yeah, it's still present in the Roman Catholic Church, as I highlighted just before the break there, uh, but to a small extent and so forth, not even, especially many American Catholics make use of that hardly at all. Um, but then, you know, just in the broader church, I think sometimes you see this as well. You highlighted, um, you know, in our personal prayer lives, how we do this bartering with God. Um, but I also see this when we when we ask for others to pray for us, right? It, it, it's it's an, in a sense of, you know, if we can just get enough churchy people uh, to pray for us, right. then God will really hear our prayer, right? And that's why when something happens or someone has cancer, uh, it, it's not necessarily 
all out of piety. It's, it's just, we got to get all these churches and all these Christians praying and we got to get the word out, you know, about this because if enough prayers go up, then, then, then this'll, this'll earn, you know, God's favor to grant healing or, then or whatever. God really has to listen. Right. Yeah, right. God really has to listen. Yeah. Kind of this, um, kind of a, a, a religious democracy idea. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And then I also wonder too about, you know, sometimes you see this play out, you know, and that, uh, you know, as I highlighted with the, at the time, you know, it's really convenient for the Roman Catholic Church that as you have Christians who, who know their struggles to live a pious Christian life as they're called to as, as the fruit of faith, uh, rather than live in that struggle and, and live by the grace of God that, that, that produces good fruit in them, right? And, and the working of the Holy Spirit, uh, it becomes really convenient to say, Oh, well, but I have these monks over here and I'll just go ahead and pull from their, their merits, right? Or, or these saints and I'll pay uh, to make use of that. Sometimes I think this plays out in the church as well, too, that, uh, you know, we, we have, we have our hearers in the church, um, you know, who are, who are coming to church and, and just by sitting in the ch- uh, pew on Sunday, sometimes they think they're earning something, right? Uh, but then they go out and they, they don't really live in the struggle to live a pious Christian life throughout the week because they know their sinful struggles. And, and rather than, you know, w- wage war against that with God's word and his grace, um, they just kind of give into it and they say, oh, but that's okay because I got church on Sunday and, and my pastor, you know, he's a really good pastor. And so, you know, he's living the life that we should as Christians. And, you know, I don't know that it's always that intentional or anything, but I kind of see a play out there as well in the church, the broader church uh, still today. And I don't know, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that treasure and merits, um, you know, kind of still playing out today too. Right. You were talking about kind of the, uh, the struggle that we live in as, as, as Christians. And this is actually something that I think is punctuated uh, in this article here. The, there's a reason that Luther brings up baptism at the end of the article when he's talking about the monks, and he says, they also boast from their St. Thomas Aquinas that a monastic vow is equal to baptism. Now, it it would just kind of be, we could view it as Luther just kind of racking up more arguments of, you know, the, the, the heresies and the blasphemies that are being made with the claims about what what monasticism actually does accomplish. But I think that Luther mentions baptism here very specifically, uh, because what he's doing is he he is bringing it back to uh, the hearers of the word, um, no matter what their station is within the church or outside of the church. That that this is that 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 life of being baptized is what we've all been called to. And for someone to claim that they have access to a better gift or that they have access to um, more more privilege or more honor or more rewards from God based on something that they've done above and beyond what he has given to his entire church on earth um, in the baptismal life, uh, that, that that's why he, that he does put that exclamation point, this is blasphemy, um, that you can't do any better than the baptism that we've all received as Christians, because that baptism then is what equips us um, by giving us the spirit, by giving us faith, um, that that actually does, you know, go with us into our lives so that we do, uh, so that we do, you know, wage war against the flesh, uh, so that we do understand that we have God's grace backing us up, um, and that we do understand that, you know, 
I have the same baptism that my pastor has. Um, I have the same baptism that, you know, Martin Luther had. That this baptism, that, that there's no, there's no greater or lesser um, in in terms of my standing before God, uh, because I have that same, um, I have that same title, child of God, given to me uh, that that they do. And Absolutely, the and it, and it is the best weapon that proceeds forth from faith. And this is well set up in, in the small catechism by Luther himself, right? Especially I'm thinking of the, the, uh, the fourth part of baptism, uh, in the small catechism where, where he talks about, uh, what is b- baptizing with water such, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever, right? Uh, that, that's the life of faith right. as we wage war against the flesh uh, that, that's directed to us from Scripture itself. Um, and, and if you're pointing to this monastic order as being equal to baptism, well, there, there is no waging against the sinful flesh uh, through the monastic order, uh, just paying for And it's completely unsupported uh, in Scripture. Um, of course, you know, Luther, in, in his great genius, cites the Scripture where he makes these points in his explanations in the small catechism, especially with baptism. Uh, and he cites Romans 6, I believe it is, uh, when, when it comes to that fourth part. So, yeah, it, it's it's... It's a genius, genius thing. And thank you for highlighting that for us there. Uh, unfortunately, I'm sure there's much more we could say about this and, and uh, so forth. But I do want to push us forward to, to get Article 15 here uh, because uh, we, we got to start the power and primacy of the Pope uh, next week. Uh, so we do need to wrap up the small called articles this week. So uh, let me go ahead and read Article 15. Again, this is small called articles, part three, Article 15, human traditions. The declaration of the papists that human traditions serve for the forgiveness of sins or merit salvation is unchristian and condemned. As Christ says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, Matthew 15, verse 9. Again, the commands of people who turn away from the truth, Titus 1, verse 14. When they declare that it is a mortal sin if someone breaks these ordinances, this too is not right. These are the articles on which I must stand, and God willing, shall stand even to my death. I do not know how to change or yield anything in them. If anyone wants to yield anything, let him do it at the peril of his conscience. Finally, there there still remains the Pope's bag of tricks about foolish and childish articles, such as the dedication of churches, the baptism of bells, the baptism of the altar stone, and the inviting of sponsors to these rites who would make donations towards them. Such baptism is a mockery and scorning of holy baptism, and so should not be tolerated. Furthermore, concerning the consecration of wax candles, palm branches, cakes, oats, spices, and such, these cannot be called consecrations, but are sheer mockery and fraud. Such tricks are without number. We commend them for adoration to their God and to themselves until they weary of it. We will have nothing to do with them. And then uh, it says Dr. Martin Luther subscribed and a whole bunch of other names subscribed. I'm not going to read through those. Uh, ch- get get a book of the 
Book of Concord uh, from CPH there and uh, check those out for yourself. There's there's something impressive uh, about the number of folks that subscribe to this uh, at peril of their own life at the time of the Reformation, um, uh, even more so when it comes to the Augsburg Confession, but uh, um, very impressive there. So he highlights a few things here. Um, once again, bring us back to this baptism and, and they they baptize certain things and so forth, but, but all of it, I think, hovers around this main point that he makes right at the beginning of this article, um, that they that they claim that such things serve for the forgiveness of sins or merit salvation, and this is unchristian. This has been his point um, through almost every single article addressing abuses in the church, um, that, that, that these things are unchristian because they lead away from Christ and trust and faith true faith in Christ as our only way of salvation by God's grace. And, and so this this is blasphemy. This is unchristian. This ca- this cannot be tolerated. Uh, go ahead, Pastor Oliphant, and explain to us some of these human traditions and these things going on. And, and uh, just being aware of time, go ahead. And, and if you want to jump into, we even see in our churches, our Lutheran churches, I have my Lutheran service book agenda here, uh, where, you know, we, we consecrate some of these items for use in the uh, divine services and in the sanctuaries of our churches and so forth. Uh, but Luther has some strong words here. So is he, is he claiming that what we do now is unchristian or is he addressing something specific at the time? Go ahead and lay out for us what, what's going on here with this article. Right. So in this article, um, I think that we can actually, so I think we can actually draw a little bit of a, a dividing line, uh, and maybe and cut the cut the article a little bit into different sections. Um, you know, it's interesting to note that uh, that that first paragraph you read when he reads when he talks about the um, when he quotes Matthew fifteen nine in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, and again the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And when they declare that it is a mortal sin if anyone breaks these ordinances, that too is not right. Now it's interesting to note um, that. At this point, we actually see in the uh, in the 1538 uh, publication of the Small Call Articles and in the Book of Concord that came out then, um, that we actually see the next paragraph starting with another one of those nice, beautiful, uh, big scripted letters, kind of indicating that now we're reaching a summary of everything that's gone before in all of the articles. Uh, and so I think we can draw a little bit of a line there where we can talk about kind of the 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 ordinances, the official dogmas of the of the popes and the councils in this first section, and then we can talk about some of the um, the other things that have that have crept up as a result of these of uh, these false teachings in the church. You know, the consecration of candles, um, palms, spices, things like that. I'll I take that as a friendly section, amendment and let you do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in the first section, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with the doctrines of men that have to uh, that I believe that I believe are you know the the official decrees of the popes, the official decrees of the church councils that end up uh, you know basically saying unless you submit yourself to the authority of these doctrines, you are outside the church. Um, that, that you are outside salvation. And so I, I think that we can see in this first section uh, that there's a, uh, that there's a, a, that what Luther is doing, he's really kind of swinging for the fences on this one by saying uh, that, that this is his, the big final article tying everything that's gone together between, um, between monastic vows, between false, uh, 
false repentance, between marriage of priests, what ordination is, what confession is, what excommunication really is. And he's basically saying everything that that Rome has published on these issues is uh, is false uh, because it's coming from their own opinions. It's coming from their own regulations. Go back to Scripture. You've been warned about this, um, that we need to go back to what Christ has instituted. Um, and then, kind of as a, as a denouement, we have this next section where he's saying, and we also have these other things, um, you know, that we're not even going to bother to deal with because they're childish, they're foolish. Um, and these are things like, uh, you know, I love the way that he puts that, the, the Pope's bag of tricks, um, dedication of churches, baptism of bells, baptism of the altar stone, um, inviting the sponsors who are paying for these things to come. Um, and so I think there is where we can see the dividing line between some of the liturgical rites that you are that you are discussing that we have in our own our own service books, our own agendas that we actually do make use of now, um, and then what he's describing there. Um, what Luther is describing there is part of again that that nice kind of economical system that we were describing with, uh, with when the treasury of merits this one is definitely kind of runs right alongside it where um you know if you if you can't dedicate yourself to go into a monastery or if you can't uh you know get it together and do enough good works well then you could pay for good works to be done and the way you do that is you you pay for a church pay for the altar stones um and so these are the sponsors of the rites uh, who are making the donations toward them. And that's why Luther says such baptizing is a mockery and a scorning of holy baptism, and it should not be tolerated, uh, because this is offering something that God has not instituted when it comes to baptizing, when it comes to blessing these things with water and the word. God never once has told us that we are to bless the stones of the church with uh, with the same uh, baptismal rite that we would give to to people who are to, to the people that he's called into his church. Um, it's a mockery to do that, to, to take something that he has instituted and to twist it in that way. And so, um, so we can see there in all of these um, ceremonies uh, that he's describing at this very end, um, that he, he's tying all of this into the idea that, again, these things, when, we, when, when they're being done by Rome, the assumption is that just in the doing of these things, this is something that's earning God's pleasure. The fact that uh, that there's a priest who's blessing, you know, the grain, the fact that that grain gets eaten, well, then that's a good work that the priest is doing. That's a good work that the people who are eating the grain is doing, and for the people who paid for this ceremony to be done, to be done, that's a good work that they're doing. So it's kind of cre- going back into that economy of works earning something from God. Um, now, is that the same thing that we're doing liturgically? I would argue no, um, because we, we do also know that um, everything is sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer, which, um, you know, when we, when we look at what our liturgical rites are, that's exactly what they are whenever we're, you know, dedicating a new sanctuary space or um, if we have any kind of um, consecration of any vessels that are going to be used specifically within the service. What we're doing is we're setting them aside uh, with the Word of God, and we're praying that God would bless their use. Um, 
not that they would be ineffectual without it, but we're praying that we would be able to use these things for the purpose that they're being set aside for, whether it's a chalice or a communion or whether it's um, you know, a communion rail that's being installed in a new sanctuary or whether it's the building of a new building at all. Um, of an entire new building that we would uh that what we're, what we're asking god is that we would use these things for the purpose that he set aside for it that it would be used according to his will and the way that that's done is we search the scriptures to find out what that is um, we read the scriptures so that it's publicly known and then we pray um, putting the onus entirely back on god uh, that all of these things will be done according to his good purpose rather than thinking that we're doing something that's going to uh that's going to earn his good pleasure whether it's temporal or eternal and i think that's important what you've highlighted there in this this difference between what we still see in the church today and what was going on at the time with those things and and i like how you you highlighted those words there and you see this at the beginning of most of the rites that we use in the church that that things are sanctified by god's word and prayer you see those specific words show up in a lot of those rites and so i i think that's critically important what you've highlighted there because it doesn't mean, though, that uh, there, there's not still people uh, in the church that, that do things with wrong motives today. And we, we got to live in this tension. We got to hold things in tension. And, and I've actually seen some people that, you know, will buy things at a church or throw money at a church and then somehow think that that earns them favors from the church that, you know, well, then you're going to do right. this the way I want it. You know, whether that be a wedding or a funeral or something like that. And no, th this exactly. this is this is God's word that guides us here. Right. And I also like what you, you highlighted there. You said that you love that, uh, that line, the post bag of tricks and kind of connecting with what I said earlier. Yeah. It's a, it's a great bag of marketing tricks. I, I remember coming through undergrad right. with public relations and marketing and, you know, they said, you know, Oh, Anheuser-Busch is one of the greatest marketing examples out there. And I said, no, they're not. They're second to the Roman Catholics. They're, they have the best bag of tricks out there. <laughs> anyway, with just a, a few uh, seconds left, any, any parting thoughts from you, Pastor Tim? Today, uh, yeah, you know, Luther is a man who's always looking for um, for instituting words, and so I think that's why he's able to see so clearly whether it's in these these controverted articles at the end of Small Called, or whether it's when he's giving the the statement of what the core of the faith is uh, that he's always looking for instituting words from Christ um, to tell us exactly what it is we're supposed to put our faith in, um, which is why he's able to kind of see through all the bag of tricks. He's able to look at uh, his society and see that it's completely upside down. And he's able to uh, make a, a good, clear confession of the faith because he's always looking for that word of God that's establishing uh, what it is that we are to be believing, teaching, and confessing. Well said. Thank you so much, Pastor Anthony Oliphant from Redeemer in Elmhurst, Illinois. Thank you for being with us today and helping us be in concord with the small called articles, Article 14, Monastic Vows, and Article 15, Human Traditions, in this Part 3 of the small called articles. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord, please send us a message by phone, 314-996-1542, email kfuo at kfuo.org. Social media, you can find us at KFUO Radio. Next time, we'll begin the power and primacy of the Pope. Thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>